truth of the matter was, stories was everything, and everything was stories. Everybody told stories. It was a way of saying who they were in the world. It was their understanding of themselves. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Quetzalcoatl is a legend of a, of a man who walked through the Americas who had Christ-like abilities. The Toltecs called him Quetzalcoatl after the Quetzal bird. He never said what his name was. And the, the Mayans called him Klan, and another name was Wiracocha. And this was a Christ-type person that, that there's legends and artifacts. There's the Temple of Quetzalcoatl down in, by Mexico City, and there's writings that have been found to talk about this man and the things that he did. I felt that Christ, the Spirit, has visited this planet throughout creation in one form or another. Gandhi could be Christ. Okay, you and I could be Christ if we discipline ourselves. So Christ is a way of being. Jesus, the man, kind of ushered that into our planet. and showed, He says, what you've seen me do, you can do. My whole premise, and I have to go back to where I was at because I've been asked this question before. And I really think I did not want to use the name Jesus because Christians have, have turned it in. They'll, 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 there's so many people that don't know him or don't know what it's about. He's about pushing it. And at that time, garage bands were turned into Christian praise groups. And they were just rhyming stuff. There was no depth to it whatsoever. And uh, um, so I used Quetzalcoatl maybe as a mystery uh, which worked. Uh, if I would have just gone, Jesus, Jesus, where do you think this album would be today? You know, so I think I don't think that was wisdom on my part. I think it was lucky on my part that I would pick something that's kind of bizarre and non-Christian. I didn't want it to be Christian. I don't see psychedelic in the in in the um, music that I was playing of Quetzalcoatl because I was I was recovering from psychedelics. Uh, however, the psychedelic thought process of getting you out of this physical world we live in, that stays with you forever. Life used to be good. Now look what I've done. I do remember the, the uh, first part of the 60s. I don't know about the last part of it. <laughs> I've ruined.
I'm Dave Bixby, David Bixby. I go by David. Dave was the name I used. That's okay, too. We're in northern Arizona, which is a lifestyle that I've picked for myself, and I love it here. It's got the balance of what I'm looking for, and from here I get to travel around and do uh, concerts and share with you people uh, things that are meaningful to me and things that can be proven if you're willing to discipline yourself. I was born in Michigan, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And grew up on the Great Lakes and had a lot of fun with water and sand dunes. And My father was not religious. My mother took me a couple different denominations. She wasn't particularly religious, but uh, that was something that uh, she felt that she should do for us. So I was with her most of the time. He never participated. Really good folks. They were good to me. So, you know, I wasn't all twisted out because of my upbringing. They left me alone. I could do whatever I wanted. You know, As long as I stayed out of trouble, it didn't draw him into putting a leash on me. And then growing up, my, my folks would buy me instruments and help me out with that. My first experiences when I was 11, uh, listening to Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul, Mary, and, uh, and then Bob Dylan came on the scene, and then pretty soon Beatles came up, and folk music was kind of something else. And, and I knew all the folk songs, and I was playing at uh, different engagements, was on TV. We had a little knockoff Kingston Trio band with a banjo and a guitar and a in a tenor guitar, and we had our striped shirts, so we looked like our hair was cut back, you know. And then pretty soon, Jimi Hendrix came along, and, uh, and uh, folk music turned into psychedelic folk. Then I got into drug use. The point is, in order to use your head, in fact, I dropped acid in high school. I did pretty well, too, in speech class. About 15 to 20 percent of our young people today are exploring their consciousness. It was like going into my closet and there's another world on the other side. And it can be even more important than reading the Bible six times or becoming a, a, a pope or something like You don't understand what's happening to you, but what I think now is that our programming falls away and our fears falls away and all our filters fall away. And if you got demons, you'll see them. If you got angels, you'll see them. And that's how life is. If you have fear, your fear will produce a result. And that's not life doing it to you. You're the one that sowed the seeds. And we don't know that. We're out of touch with that. We're the source. And that's back when LSD was not illegal. So it was introduced by the United States government into our society. There was a doctor up in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, who was a neurosurgeon who uh, was asked to, to do controlled experiments, and they gave him acid. And so he took it and he liked it. And he gave it to his sons and they liked it. And he had his sons bring in their friends and we all tripped together. And so we had somewhat of a mentor as far as a professional a person that would talk to us about it. Before you take this, you got to understand if something comes up you don't like, uh, it's an illusion. So don't freak out, don't jump off a building, don't do anything stupid, and you'll be out of this in eight hours. So we, they talked about having a bad trip. No one I knew really had one. It was uh, pretty much enlightenment for everybody. It's not their demons were coming. Uh, it was wonder. I thought it was amazing to look at a square door and watch it start to breathe or the floor start to raise up and watching people's faces change while you're looking at them and all of a sudden you can't recognize them and then snapping back out of it. You know, those are, those are things that can freak you out. It never freaked me out. I thought, well, interesting, because I knew it was an illusion. 
And I wouldn't say LSD gives you a spiritual experience, but you get to see the wonder of the creation while you're tripping. That's not God. That's that's what God made, and we're in that. Music was right in there with it, and all the people that were doing music, you know, we were all kind of, uh, hey, try this. I got, you know, my dad gave me some acid. Let's drop acid, you know. You know well, if your dad gave it to you, it must be okay. <laughs> you know? It was just so odd to see a suit and tie. Dropping acid. I had rock bands uh, I was in, and we were doing all cover tunes. And yeah, we were tripping and playing in, in, uh, in those bands. Uh, one of the bands was called Friends of Mind. Another one was Peter and the Prophets. I realized that I was trying to become a man, but our society doesn't have rites of passage. So we're kind of on our own. Our fathers didn't get it, so they couldn't give it to us. Dropping acid in the experiment was a discovery of self. And the trick was to, when you have a realization or an epiphany, which you can have while on acid, is how to bring that into the real world. Take it out of the illusion. Turned on to your own nervous system. You're turned on to uh, your own body. You're turned on to incredible wisdom which lies inside every cell in your body. Well, I started doing it every week, which is a little much. You need to decompress. It became almost a habit. And uh, 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 that's where you get in trouble with it because you're not giving yourself a chance to wrap your head around that and normalize before you're out there again. And that's where, the, that's where you can disconnect. And it's a horrible experience. It's like going to hell and still and living through it. It can be the hope for heaven or a hell for the horror. And then poof, my circuits blew out. I flipped. Okay, so I hit the void. It's not like I was angry or mad or anything. I was just like, I was just tripping on the energy and all of a sudden I was in the void. I was hoping when I came down I'd be okay, and I wasn't. And I wandered around for about a year as an empty body. It's like a soul death. I couldn't formulate prayers. I couldn't articulate that I needed help. I couldn't go to my parents. Couldn't formulate sentences. And, uh, if I was frustrated, there's just I couldn't. I couldn't express it. I couldn't recognize my parents. I didn't recognize my home. My cat, who I grew up with, would have nothing to do with me. There was just something about my energy, like let me out of here. I don't even want to be in the same room. I was broken, and I knew that no earthly, there was no earthly cure. I was spiritually dead. It's truly like a living hell, and if I would have concluded, like many people do, that the rest of my life is going to be like this, I would have killed myself. No question about it. And it's not like, poor me, it's like, I need, I need out. Suicide looked like a breath of fresh air to where, where I was coming from. I kept looking at myself in the mirror. I didn't know who I was. And um, the fear of going outside and being with other people. The realization that I'm done. I screwed myself up beyond repair. And all the good time friends were gone. You know, there was like, in fact, they weren't even friends. You know, they were just, we did the same drugs together. Now when I quit, they quit me. 
I just dropped out of that whole scene and dropped out of all that people, say all those people, and I was a loner at that point. Cut down in my manhood before my time left in my darkness. I call it a little death process. It was probably more of a death of my ego than it was a death of my spirit. So I was nobody and I knew it. After this LSD experience in this emptying out in this recovery process, I could not put into words my experience, but music covered it quite well because that covers the emotions and it covers more aspects of communication than just talking. So the songs were a documentation for myself, a therapy for myself, a psalm. The difference between a song and a psalm is a psalm has a truth in it. And when you forget the truth and you come back and listen to the psalm, you go, oh, yeah. It realigns you with what you know to be true, but we drift from what we know to be true. And then we start not liking ourselves. Caught up in worldly ways, lost so many I wrote these songs and started playing them at group meetings and we started growing. There was like 300 people. This is David Bixby and we are at the uh, uh, Southern Baptist Church and, and uh, they've been good enough to let us use the stage to do a mini concert for you. I was playing music in Christian coffee shops. Um, I started uh, listening to people and I had some people that were sharing testimonies where they prayed and had something happen. Don DeGraff came to a coffee shop where I was playing with a friend of mine, Brian McKinnis, who played lead guitar in a band with me. Don DeGraff claimed to have an experience with God. All right. Brian believed it. Brian told me about him. He told him about me. So they came down to where I was, and Don wanted to talk to me. He wasn't like a preacher, uh, and he didn't have an agenda to shove at me. He was curious about me. And, uh, and then we went back to this little church that uh, he represented at the time. And he had a key, and we went in and prayed. And they prayed that God would reveal himself to me and, and heal, heal me. It was a great little prayer, uh, but it wasn't my prayer. It was theirs. You can make up a spiritual experience and uh, because you want one. So you got to be careful of that. And then I went home that night going, are you there? And that's that was my first prayer. <laughs> yeah. And if you're there, you know, don't hurt me. Then I think that's where it all began, is when I did my own praying and quit listening to everybody else. You come up on a sandy clearing 
So chances are you'll have to go through a period of aloneness between you and your creator before you'll find other people who have had similar experiences and know exactly what you're talking about. You don't have to explain it. That was up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It was 1969, and the basement filled up with people, and we'd meditate and have prophecies and have these experiences, and we'd uh, pull out the scriptures and start talking about this stuff, and then then that turned into Bible studies. DeGraff became more of a leader. These groups grew because church was pretty boring at that time for a lot of people. Doing these concerts, people say, well, why don't you do an album? I'd like, do you have any albums? That's where the, the seed was planted. This particular church I was involved with offered to pay for it. It took two nights, and we did the, re, the songs in order that I did them, presented them in a concert. I took them to a man who uh, recorded gospel music, and he had connections in, in um, Nashville. He sent the tape and the artwork, and they did the rest, and it was a low budget, I think a dollar a album, a thousand albums. I named it Ode to Quetzalcoatl, or Ode to Christ. I don't know if I can really tell you why I chose that name. I think I chose it because I didn't want it to to look like Christianity. And I think that's what makes it. It's the time it came out, the mystique around it. It's searching at a time when church isn't working. my guitar Wonders why I Drug song was after I recovered, and it was describing the hell I came out of. I was tired of talking about it, so I put it into a song, and I could just like I could. It was closure for me. That was then. This is now. Six 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 described the last days. It describes how we, as a people, are unconscious. We're, we think we have control, but we're being controlled. When six, six, six will soon be bound for a thousand years. When six, six, six will soon be bound for a thousand years until that day. We did concerts, and we had so many disciples, so to speak, that's what we call ourselves, going out, bringing in people. We didn't need radio. We didn't need, I mean, we were filling up concerts, charging our own money, and doing all this get away from the church stuff, which was very attractive. 
and also get away from your parents, which is a cult thing. You know, at, at that age, most people want, kids want to get away from their parents and their brothers and sisters. And then we had this album with my testimony on the back. And these things were being sold and doors started opening. And we were getting calls from colleges and people, come, come and speak to us. At this point, we have an organization called The Group. Don DeGraff, at that point, started taking upon himself leadership. More people started giving themselves over to him. He was a ruffian turned Jesus. It's a good story. Christians like hearing that, you know. Here's a guy out in the streets, you know, with the knives and being being a badass. And now, all of a sudden, the, the Jesus comes to him, and so now he reaches out to these people and, and, and transforms their lives. Yeah, it's an old story. You know, there's nothing special about that. As the women started coming in, and the men started practicing celibacy. And so Don started making himself a harem. He started becoming an Old Testament prophet. Grand Rapids grew to a 300, and then we broke off and opened up maybe 10 states. And each state had like 30, 40 people. So most of us all held jobs. We rented maybe two or three houses, a house for the men, a house for the women. And so that was as communal as it got, this whole thing turned into a machine. We were recruiting, and then we were selling soap, going out testifying and selling litter bags and combs and parking lots and panhandling money for, for, for giving it to Don. We were trained to, to meditate in the morning for one hour, and then we, and a lot of times we would meet at these houses, so it'd be group meditation, and we were to be, sit blindfold with the earplugs and uh, not move. Master meditator, if you move, they would take a cattle prod and put it on the back of your neck and sap you with it. No sex, no TV, no media, no meat, no alcohol, no negative thinking, scripture reading, focus positive points in your head, making program tapes that you go to sleep with and tapes with an alarm that'll wake you out of a deep sleep and program yourself on who you want to be and how you want to be. And DeGraff never programmed us. He had us program ourselves. And then slowly exhale. When you're in a cult, the outside world is the enemy. And I can see that creeping into my music. It's them and us. We are pilgrims. Because the first one turned into a marketing tool, now we've got another marketing tool, and DeGraff owned this one, Lock, Stock, and Barrel, and took my name off it and put it out there as a mystery. We set out to see As far as I'm concerned, any church that has a tax number of the United States government is a cult. All the cults that have been busted in this country is not because of religion or because of anything they were doing weird to people. Uh, it was because they were making money and putting it in their pocket and not claiming it. <laughs> 
And all DeGraff had to do was sign up to be a church like any other church. The heat was on. The police were looking at him. The church was looking at him. The gals he was doing, some of them would get, get disgruntled and let the cat out of the bag. And we quit doing concerts. We quit, quit doing public stuff. He didn't want me to play music at the meetings anymore. And I asked him about some of the prophecies that he had abandoned. Forget the Bible, forget this and that. Now we're meditating, we're worshiping this guy. And he was very upfront with me. He says, it's over, David. You need to find your own way. And he was hoping I would leave quietly, and I did. I was addicted to this group. That's a cult. And I was so embarrassed and ashamed and felt so stupid. And I knew better than this. It dwindled into his harem. And they bought a ski lodge up in uh, northern New Mexico where they could live it and sleep it. I had parents hire me to go up there and get their kids out. And they'd give me plane tickets and, you know, you know, a couple of bucks to go in there. And, and these people knew who I was. It's not like I was a deep programmer that didn't understand their situation. They're following a path that I abandoned. So, and I was a leader. What I did is I went in to the sons and daughters of the people who employed me to go in. And I lived amongst them, right next to them, unbeknownst to them. Had my backpack, and, and, uh, and I didn't have any campfires, and I just, you know, I slept right next to their lodge, and I was up in trees and this and that. And I was waiting for the individual. And it was interesting because for them, I must have just appeared out of nowhere. And I go, your, fo your folks want to know what's going on with you. And here's a plane ticket home. All of them said, you know what? I knew this day was coming. I'm not ready right now. And in time, all of them went home. afraid of life outside of that little that little click we all choose what we choose and you can't be blaming Don DeGraff for me giving up my will and then he allegedly died in a helicopter crash which could be faked he had a baby with one of the gals and I can see him getting out of responsibility of that by faking this little death thing or he might really be dead I don't know. Once letting go, it's like they call cutting bait. When your lure is hooked up on the bottom and the sun's going down and you want to go home, well, you're going to give up maybe, what, $8 worth of tackle. Cut it and go home. Okay, but most people won't. <laughs> you know, same thing with a cult. In order to get out after you've been indoctrinated... You, you're your own worst enemy. You, you're like a surgeon who needs surgery trying to operate on himself. <laughs> you know how to do it, but you can't do it. You need, you need someone else to do that. Once I got out, got clear, I came out this way, came out west. I was up in some property I bought in northern New Mexico, and I was off the grid, so there was no telephone. All the people that lived in that area, there was one person on the edge that had an old-time telephone line, and we all had CB radios. 
And it was like a whole little community out there. I thought, well, this is this. I thought I was all alone out there. And for the most part, I was. But I realized within, you know, 20 square miles, there's a lot of people just like me. And most of them have the same reason for being out there. And then I moved to Valley, which is north of here. I lived another eight years off the grid. I spent a lot of time down in, in the canyon, Grand Canyon, days in the canyon without passes or nothing. I just disappeared in the canyon. And uh, at night, there were no rangers, nobody to check your hooya, you know, and I would, I would do all my hiking in moonlight. It was another world. I was all by myself. Could have been 100 years ago where I was. Other than jet streams in the sky, I could have been ancient. Got a chance to, to wrap my head around my past and to see what, what were legitimate spiritual experiences and what were falsified and what I bought into. I had to dump all of it. I had to cut bait. There was a therapy there, okay? I was not religious anymore, uh, and I wasn't preaching anything or teaching anything. I was just being. Then I left there kind of a new person. 1981, 82, I went up to Seattle, and five days after I got there, uh, I got a job at the Cairo Television, which is a major TV station. K-I-R-O-T-V. Channel 7, in Seattle, and I wanted to to do some jingle work. Going up to Seattle turned me into a sailor. The dream of sailing was a, not a nightmare, but the tide was against me. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I understood the books. And uh, as I got out and sailed for two or three years, and had I learned how to work with the tide. And I learned how to, instead of fighting nature, I understood that I, I'm not, I'll, I'll lose. You gotta get with nature. The name of the boat was Free Spirit. I sailed the boat and banged it into a few bridges and it needs some work. So I left the TV station my next adventure was to finish off this boat. I moved up into a, the Snohomish River. I could go up river from the salt water, and there was marinas all up and down these rivers, and you could, you could just anchor to the shore and live. And if you could find a place to park your car, that's your home, man. No rent, no nothing. So I found it as a squatter living on a boat, and all that wilderness area was just, it was heaven. Got a lot of music on cruise boats, and I played at the local restaurants. You know, rock and roll, you know, just the more they drink, the more I make. You know, I wasn't about being spiritual at this point, I was about people. Early dream of putting this boat together, stocking it, Taking nautical courses, uh, celestial navigation. Back then, they didn't. We didn't have uh, uh, GPS. We had what they called Loran. Bought a brand new Loran unit. 
I had old-time sailors tell me, whatever electronic gear you put up for automatic helm and this and that, make sure that when your batteries go dead, and they will, that you aren't addicted to that. You learn how to use a sextant. Learn how to use a compass. And use the old wisdom. Because technology works until it doesn't. And then when it doesn't, and you don't know how to back it up. The plan was to sail my boat to Hawaii. My boat was ready. Okay, I'm down at the marina. I'm hanging out with all these sailors, and everybody is bragging on how they're going to take these trips here and there. And I had a lot of people that said they'd want to sail with me. And it came right down to it, none of them were there. And it was good because I don't think any of them had the temperament. I could see if I got in trouble out there, these people would be part of the problem. I would rather deal with it alone and perish rather than having these people cursing me for why they're dying. Because <laughs> I knew what I was going up again. I was flirting with death. So the next goal was to go down the coast because I didn't have anybody to help me. So I sailed out from Friday Harbor for the last time with my dog. My poor dog, I knew we were going to be at sea and she was going to have to poop and she was trained not to do it on the boat. And so I nailed a branch to a deck that was easy just to wash off. And so <clears throat> I started down the coast. So I'm sailing out there and I'm out 100 miles. And uh, no matter what you're doing, right or wrong, the current will take you where you want to go. After about six days, the poor dog, she just, you know, finally, she looked all guilty one morning when I got up. And I looked over there, here's a pile she had to tiptoe off. And uh, right on that branch. And uh, so at that point, and, she, and I let her be, let it know, it's okay, it's okay, that's where you do your thing. I tried to explain it to her, but dogs don't quite get that. At night, I just drop the sail, and I get up the next morning, and the sails would be all combobulated, but I'd check where I was, and I, would make, I was 10 miles in the direction I wanted to go. So I put in at uh, Trinidad, California. Man, I came through the fog, and I was sailing at night, and there was a full moon coming through this big, thin sail I had for light winds. And I have to navigate my way into this harbor where there's a bunch of fishing boats. I was the only sailboat there. It was just a fishing village. And there are a lot of crashes on that beach. There's a, a river that goes out and it eddies people in. Finally got all settled in and got in there without hitting anything. And, and so I went to shore and sent off a couple letters to the, at the post office and went uptown. And uh, I was getting used to walking around on land. And I stayed there a few days and took a few pictures of the boat from up at the lighthouse. When the, when the smoke cleared, it was kind of interesting to see where I ended up. I'm seeing this as spiritual food. And I'm an adventure, so I, doing a journey and doing an experiment is okay with me. I don't have to wee with a thing, you know. I'm just curious about the workings of, of life and, and where I fit in it. And I was on my way back out to sea. And I got out about 10 miles. In the middle of the night while I was sleeping, uh, the boat was pulled into some shallow water. And I could feel it was getting shallow because the waves get steep. And that's what woke me up. And I realized I was, I was in trouble. 
So I started out my outboards and okay, I'm out of here. You know, the outboard, I'm going up this wave. I'm going up this way. <laughs> and I'm going backwards and the outboards just didn't have the power to push this big boat. And I'm starting going backwards in the back of the boat and the outboards, everything underwater. So my dog was down in one hall, and everything was closed up as far as air vents and the hatch, and I opened it up, and I was calling her to come out of there, and it was dark, I couldn't see, and I'm thinking, maybe she's better there, and the fact that she didn't come was fine, so I just closed the hatch to get forward, to drop this anchor before I'm in, into the beyond return. I thought it might be wise to get a call off the Coast Guard, so... I did a mayday, and that's where I had to deal with my fear because I knew I was—I couldn't pretend that I was in trouble. And this was beyond me. I'm going down. My options, other than dropping his anchor, are gone. And I got the call out. The Coast Guard didn't hear it, but a fisherman heard it and relayed it to them. And at that point, the waves—it just lifted the boat, hit the bottom, and then I hung on. And I did it again, and these bolts and. Everything holding these beams to these two hulls started popping. Ripped the cabin off the boats and this wave went in the boat, sucked out my guitar, my bed, my clothes, my books. <laughs> I, I lived on my everything I owned. This big wave came up. And there's just a moment of silence before it does its thing. You know, it's just like, <laughs> boom, and all hell breaks loose. And I mean, they like to knock the eyeballs out of your head. It hits you so hard. And I hung out of the boat, and then the next wave just knocked me right off the boat. I was in the water. At that moment, I saw that I was pretty much done. I wasn't going to survive this. So I said out loud, is this it for me? Because I was going to suck in a lung of water and just do, just get it over with. And my little voice spoke to me and said, David, if you must participate in your own salvation. Participating in your own salvation, I just, I, at that I perked up. And I started pulling on loose lines and I found a line that was wrapped around part of the keel. I pulled too hard, it'd come off, but if I just was gentle with it, it would pull me over to the boat. And I got up on that hull, which was upside down, and the dog was in there. So I'm patting on the hull, and the waves are breaking over the top of me. And I'm talking to the dog as if she was alive, and it seemed like she was. I didn't get that she was dead. And so I'm talking to her. We're going to do it. We're going to make it. And I'm pounding on the hull. I jumped off the boat, and the undertow pulled me out the sea. And as I went past my the rudder, there's a space in between. I got my hands in there. And then the next wave, I didn't put my feet down. I rode the wave and it threw me up on the beach. Finally, I crawled up on shore. My concern was my dog. She didn't deserve this. She's doing, doing what I'm saying. I'm kind of having a dialogue prayer. It's not, dear Heavenly Father, save my dog. It wasn't like that. It was like, this isn't right, you know, but help me, help me. The other hull that was all bashed up floated up and I had an old oar and I put, there's a fracture and I opened it up and here comes my dog. She comes out of there and then here comes a helicopter. The guy lands and he comes out. He says, are you the free spirit? And I looked at all the debris up and down this beach. I, I realized, yeah, I, I am. I'm the free spirit, you know, not the boat, me. And it, it was always like that. I thought I was naming the boat. I was just naming myself. 
And so they swooped me up. I watched these two halls that I'd worked on for so many years and made wrap my life around, <clears throat> be laying there on the beach. I had hypothermia. I was in the water probably, it was probably two o'clock in the morning and I didn't hit the beach till maybe four or 5 a.m. The sun was just coming up. And I'm more spirit than body. Feeling my body to get reference points on, am I alive? Because uh, the fog was there and I could see my boat and you could see light coming through the fog but you couldn't see the sun. If you ever got in a situation with your buddies where you could have been killed and instead of freaking out, you just, you end up laughing. Well, that's, that's where I was. I was, I'm alive, <laughs> I'm alive. When I got back to where I lived on the island, people were giving me food and clothes when they heard about it. I had people stopping. When I'm walking around, they're stopping their car, writing out checks for me. The church asked me to come in and share my story. He thought it was like baptism. And I could see where Christian cons get started from a genuine experience, and then you start milking it. And I almost started milking it. So I had a chance to go back to the site because the sheriff had a bunch of stuff they collected, my guitar and stuff like that, and they logged it in. He said, come on down, pick it up. And uh, took a hike out to where the boat was with some friends. Finally found where the boat crashed. We found the wreckage, and right next to my wreckage was a dead seal about the same size as me. And my dog and I were sitting in the skeleton and they were taking some pictures. And I'm looking at that seal, I'm going, you know, you know, it's just for some reason that could have been, could have been me. That was the end of that, I left there and I had another boat I lived on and finally I sold that and came back here to Arizona. I was in Lake Havasu when this journalist got a hold of me, who'd been looking for me for years. He found like 50 David Bixby's. And he said, what works have you done? So I rattled off some jingles I did and some stuff after that. Finally, he couldn't help. He says, do you know anything? Does the word Quetzalcoatl mean anything to you? I says, yeah. I put out an album called Ode to Quetzalcoatl. And he goes, you're it. You're the guy. He asked me if I had these albums. I says, no, I don't have any of them. He says, you, too bad you don't have a bunch of them. You'd be a rich man. Do you have any idea that this album is fetching $3,000 in Japan? He says, do you remember the songs? I said, well, yeah, kind of. He says, I'm going to send you a CD of them. I want you to listen to them again, because I think someday you might be doing concerts and you need to learn this stuff. This happened in 2007. So he came over to Lake Havasuf and got my story. Found original albums that were really good shape to do a reissue. And he bought those out of his own money. He paid $1,000 for a, a set that hadn't been opened. And he sent that set over to uh, Spain, Gerson Records. And they gave me a real fair business deal and gave me a nice, healthy chunk of cash up front, which I've never, everybody's been stealing this stuff from me. I had resistance to listening to it because I had some hurt and pain covered up and some embarrassment for letting, you know, uh, cult leaders surrendering my will to that. 
Drug song was the worst one to get used to because it described hell. For me, my hell. The hell that I'm responsible for. The hell that I created. The hell I can't blame on the devil. <laughs> you know, it's this I earned this. And I'd sit down, I'd listen to it and turn it off. And I'd come back and listen to it and turn it off. I couldn't even finish the song. It just felt, I felt nauseous. And now I'm having to kind of peel off these layers of protection and open up this uh, wound again. And this discouragement, phony stuff I believed in. After a while, I started looking at it like this. Uh, okay, this is somebody else. This is not me. Listen to it objectively. And I started to hear things. I go, yeah. I forgot that. It was a psalm. It brought me back. And then listen to the rest of the songs were all liberation songs. They were therapy, and it pulled me out. It really did. And it reconnected me to the parts that I miss about who I was. I've just seen the faces of the people that I love. So when people tell me this record has done something for them, I know what they're talking about because it did something for me. It brought me back. invited to go to Detroit in 2011. So I went ahead and played all of that music that I knew at the time that I rehearsed. It was like, you know, 15 songs, okay. When I got up, I said, how many people have heard of Quetzalcoatl? They all put up their hand. I felt the safe. to move a mountain The faith to destroy the fruitless stream On faith I should be well, I certainly missed putting myself in a position where people got value out of what I was doing. I am servant to it. I didn't start it. I didn't bring it back. I didn't research me out. I didn't write the... I, when I listen to what other people say, i got to listen to what they're saying because they're telling me there's something there that is not about David Bixby. It's about all of us. His commandments I will keep into the day. I had a guy from Greece do want to do an album for me. He starts saying, Get, we want more dark stuff. He said, more dark stuff. You know, you're known for dark stuff. Moody, dark loner, you're off the grid kind of guy, underground. Dark stuff. I says, is there a market for that crap? And he, he scolded me. He says, all of us have pain. And when you describe it, it allows us to deal with it. It's therapy. He says, there's a hurting world out there, and you're one of the few people that have spoken the truth. The truth can be negative, depending on where you stand. The truth isn't this big flowery thing, and an encounter with God isn't a big flowery thing. It's very, it turns you inside out. I don't know if God is walking around in a garden, you go hold his hands. Maybe the earth is a garden, and we are God's creation. What we think we are is a body and mind. Who we are is lost inside. How would I like to be remembered as someone who stayed true to what he knew to be true? As someone who didn't abandon themselves because it was convenient, 
someone who didn't buy into the worldly ways after seeing that there is another side, someone who knows that he's a spirit and not a body. The body is something that I have. That's not who I am. That's what I am. What I am is a guitar player. Who I am is the music that comes out. Six, six, six will soon be found for a thousand The album is a journey, and that's what Quetzalcoatl is. It's introspection, it's soul-searching, it's looking beyond where humans have gone, and it's hoping there's something there, and the truth may be there's nothing there. And you're going to have to face that. There may not be a God. It might be an illusion that we've been fed, and uh, we're buying into it. And because we believe it, things can manifest to make us think it, it's that. You've been listening to Everything is Stories, a podcast brought to you by Oscilloscope Laboratories. The episode you just heard was produced by Garrett Crow, Mike Martinez, and Tyler Ray. The music in this episode came from the man himself, Dave Bixby. Additional music was provided by Chris Reinshagen of the band Novastello. Definitely worth checking him out on some of the streaming platforms. You can find links to his music at our website, everythingisstories.com. While you're at the site, you can also find links to all of our past episodes, ways to subscribe to our newsletter, along with photos from this episode that were taken by our friend Isvet Verde. You can find Everything is Stories pretty much anywhere on the internet, on all the social media platforms and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe, follow, like, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. And remember, nothing comes from nothing and everything is stories. Whatever else Graham Greene does, he always tells you a story. Not his old introspective musing and grousing and chewing your liver. Uh-uh, let's get on with the story. Keep me up tonight with this story you're telling me. I want to turn the page. All I ever wanted to be and all I think of myself as being is a storyteller. That's all. I just tell stories. <laughs>